want to talk with us this morning for a few minutes about everyday miracles. Everyday miracles. What I mean by this is right in the middle of your ordinary, of your common, God wants to turn your common into the holy. I'm telling you. God wants to turn your common into the holy. He wants to turn your ordinary into the extraordinary. When I say everyday miracles, I'm not talking about having a grateful heart and just appreciating the fact that that we live in a nice country, we we love the South, um, and all the nice things, you know, that our heart is still beating, that we can still breathe, that we can gather like this. There's a lot. I'm not talking about those kinds of things, seeing God in in the everyday. That's good. That's a different sermon. That's not what I'm here for. I want to point us to the fact that the one true God, whose son is Jesus Christ, wants to show up frequently, frequently in your ordinary and do the extraordinary. Turn with me, please, this morning uh, to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to begin with verse 31. It's page 56 in your black journals. Let's, Let's turn there together. Now look at, I want you to listen carefully to this verse. This is a pivotal verse. It's a pivotal verse. Uh, Acts 9, verse 31. Now listen to it. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So let me tell you why this is a pivotal verse. For one It's the first place you'll see the word church. There is church. It's not used that often in the book of Acts. Kind of interesting, but it's used here. The church. Now, the second thing we see here are the two words, all Judea. All Judea. Does anybody remember an earlier place in the book of Acts where we find those two words next to each other? All Judea. There you go. We got some astute ones this morning. So Acts 1.8. When you receive power, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and you will be my truth-tellers in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Now, this, Acts 9.31, is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. And it didn't take that long. Look at this. Already, the gospel is in all Judea. There's a church in all Judea and Samaria and Galilee. This is quite a significant verse. But now, the next thing we come to is the church is being built up. That's good. But it's not just being built up. By the end of the verse, it says the church is multiplying. Multiplying. This means that the church now has gone from one location to, what is it, dozens, hundreds, thousands? We don't know. But there, there are church, 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 church. The church is multiplying. A multiplying church is a healthy church. A healthy church is a multiplying church. This is why we are confident it's time for us to multiply. Amen. Here it is. This church was being built up. We all love that. But this church was also multiplying. We are being built up, and we are multiplying. In the next 
Five years, five churches by the grace of God. Seven years, seven churches by the grace of God. May it be that we have the same blessing that they did. Multiply, 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 multiply. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now this is the bigger picture. This is verse 31 is the bigger picture. Now because the Lord and, and Dr. Luke, the author of this book, they're good storytellers to take the general and make it specific. What we're going to find here, what follows verse 31 are three everyday miracles that illustrate Acts 9.31. Three consecutive everyday miracles. The first everyday miracle was of a paralyzed guy. He'd been paralyzed eight years, and God miraculously heals him. That's, that's everyday miracle number one. Everyday miracle number two is... is is this woman, now this one's going to stretch your envelope. This woman was dead, dead. Did you hear me? Dead. Tabitha, her nickname Dorcas. But there she is, dead, and she's going to get raised from the dead. I mean, I don't care if you're Benny Hinn, this is going to stretch your envelope. I mean, this is unusual. This, you, you don't see this one every day. Then, the biggest one of all, the biggest mirror. I mean, you, th you think a, a paralyzed guy for eight years walking, I mean, that's a big one. Nobody would say that's a little one. But then, then the, the next big one, you're ramping up here, is, is, is Tabitha, who gets raised from the dead. That's a really big one. But now we come to Acts 10, and we come to our third miracle. This is actually, as we're going to see, a twin miracle but it's bigger, maybe not in how extravagant or how dramatic it is, but it's bigger in the sense that it, it, it warranted more space in the book of Acts. It's, it's one of the only moments in the book of Acts that takes an entire chapter to describe. So by sheer size, the Holy Spirit and, and, and Dr. Luke both agreed that this was more extraordinary. Somehow it deserved more space in the book of Acts. In that sense, it's bigger. And we're going to see why when we get to it. Okay, now uh, join me, Acts 9, verse 32. And as Peter uh, went here and there among them all, he came also to the saints who lived in Lydda and found a man, Aeneas, Bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. Okay, <clears throat> now, a guy who's paralyzed has a few strikes against him, but a guy paralyzed for eight years. Who prays for a guy paralyzed for eight years? I mean, the, if, if, you know, you get a word, God forbid, but there's an auto accident, some uh, uh, person's paralyzed for a while, you pray the first day, you pray the first hour, you pray the first day, the first week, the first month, but it kind of tapers off. Then you start praying, give them grace to, to handle the, 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 the limitation. And you pray differently. And that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But something happened when Peter, who'd never been there before, walks into the room. It wasn't that the others that prayed for him were praying wrong. There's no guilt here. But on this occasion, God somehow stirred, activated 
Peter's spirit to believe God even after eight years that something extraordinary is about to happen. So he says to the guy, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Oh, my word. I mean, talk about audacity, confidence. No, this is not because Peter is better than you are. Something stirred in Peter. There was an activation of faith. He saw what God was about to do. There were plenty of other paralyzed people that, that, that Peter never influenced at all. But this guy, he did. Something triggered in him at this moment. It was Aeneas' day. This was his time. And, and he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and make your bed. He sounds like his mother. Make your bed. Can you imagine this? Make your bed. And it says, immediately, the guy got up. Immediately, the guy got up. But the punchline is not the healing. Don't, don't miss this. The punchline comes in verse 35. And all the residents, all the residents of Lydda, where the guy lived, and Sharon, the neighboring town, saw him and they turned to the Lord. Can you imagine this? The whole town turns to the Lord. And the neighboring town. That's the punchline. Now, next to these verses, in, in, in your margin, whether you're on page 56, 58, <clears throat> I want you to write this verse in the margin. Luke 4, 29. Luke 4, 29 was the prayer of the early church when Peter and John got out of prison and there was all this brouhaha uh, of persecution rising against the church and, and those in authority wanted to shut it down. They said, they, we forbid you from using the name Jesus. And, and, and Peter prays, the early church prayed, a threefold prayer. The first part was about the brouhaha against the political correctness of the day. And all they prayed was, Sovereign Lord, you see their threats. Now here's the prayer. Look. Look. Look at the threats. But then the next two parts of the prayer are the key. This is where he's now asking for activation. Look on their threats. Basically, they were dismissing their fears and any intimidation. They were giving it to God. Look at their threats. And then he prays, grant stretch. Grant to us, grant to us the activation of our truth-telling that we will be truth tellers, regardless of what anybody thinks, regardless of how they respond, we will be truth tellers, grant to us, and stretch, stretch out your hand to heal. 
Now, I want you to see this. This is the prayer of the church. Do in us what you need to do, and then besides what we're doing on earth, truth-telling, we need you to work the miracles. We need you to stretch forth your hand to heal, to work signs and wonders, to do extraordinary things. Both prayers. You do what only you can do, and we will do what you've told us to do. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 9. They are going about their day-to-day telling the truth of the gospel. But at the same time, they are believing God to stretch forth his hand to heal. And my brothers and sisters, oh, that God would open my heart. Oh, that God would open your heart to expect from him, to expect from him, Everyday miracles. Do not look for the extraordinary and the sensational. Look for the common, the everyday. Bring the simple things to God and expect him to enter those, those areas. So with this one, now, now we come to the everyday miracle number two. So we come to Tabitha. And dear Tabitha, It says, all we know about Tabitha, it says here, she was full of, full of good deeds and acts of charity. What a beautiful description. Frankly, uh, and I'm not going to mention names, but we have many members of Lubarn Alliance Church that I can say this about. There are many Part of the blessing, the grace of God on Lilburn Alliance Church is we have many people in our church who are full of acts of charity, full of good deeds. Praise God. God bless each one of you. I hope you feel the pleasure of God in every act of kindness, in every act of charity. Hallelujah. This woman was like that. But she died. And then she was, of all things, laid out on the roof. Now this is a flat top roof. It doesn't have a covering, but it's got a stem wall to keep people from falling off. And it's got like a canopy, a linen cloth above. And she's laid out. And she's surrounded by, she's surrounded by mourners, widows and other women who had been loved and comforted by Tabitha and who were wearing clothes that she made for them. This is a, a really a precious sight. Somebody got the idea, we, we need to send for Peter. It, we don't know whether send for Peter, he might pray for her resurrection, or send for Peter just to pray over her dead body and, and, and bless the mourners. We don't know why, but they sent for Peter. When Peter got there, again, something changed inside of Peter. He, he saw not the impossible. He saw somehow, he saw an opportunity. This is a dead woman. And, and the whole atmosphere is full of grief and sorrow. They had already moved on in terms of w- wanting to process their grief. 
for whatever reason, Peter says, um, I'm sure he went through plenty of hoops of Middle Eastern protocol, but he, he cleared them all out. He, he needed a quiet moment. Uh, maybe he needed to come in touch with what does God want to do in this moment. He, he, there, there was such a, a, a spirit of confusion among the mourners that, that he didn't want just the, the, the horizontal atmosphere to speak to him. He wanted to hear from God. Well, God, what do you want to do here? And somehow, God, he could see it. He could see it before it happened. God revealed him, activated in Peter, faith to see this gal raised. And all he does, he's the only one on the rooftop. The others are outside, somewhere around. There he is. He's next to a dead body. He says two words. Tabitha, arise. That's all he said. Two words. And I love the next few words. And she opened her eyes. Her finger didn't twitch. The leg didn't shake. She just opened her eyes. And then it says he took her by the hand, helped her up, and then he introduced her to all her friends. I don't know whether you or I will ever have a moment like this. But I want to tell you, this is here to encourage your faith and my faith. The, the, the issue is not will we ever have the opportunity to literally raise someone from the dead. That's not the issue here. But it's included here. I'm confident of this. Because whatever you are facing, whatever Every day crisis, every day battle, every day issue you are facing in your life at this very moment. Somehow, if, if God can raise the dead, he can certainly show up in the middle of your stuff. That's the issue. That's what the message is. If God can do this, he can do this. You don't look for the sensational. You don't have to set the stage for God to work something sensational. In fact, if you're after the sensational, you're really, you might as well stop. Your motives are all shot. If your motive is to welcome the one true God into the common areas, he'll meet you. He'll meet you. He'll meet you today. He'll meet you now. How many of you want that? For God to enter the common, the everyday. Now, now, now with that. Oh, oh, before we leave. The last verse, the second to the last verse, verse 42 of chapter 9. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. That's the result. Yes, one woman got raised, but that's not the punchline. The punchline is that led to many believing in Christ. That's the punchline. 
Okay, now we come to chapter 10. And uh, this is so amazing. And it's no wonder this receives more space in the book of Acts. So, verse 1. At Caesarea, let me just stop there. I've been to Caesarea six times. I took a few pictures. I thought I, I, I might take you on with me. That's the Mediterranean. I, I love the Mediterranean, especially uh, off the coast of Israel. Um, we, we had a nice lunch. This is Caesarea. You see that building to the top left? That's, that's, that was there in the Roman days. So, so that, that was there when, when this is taking place. That's Caesarea. Okay, we can run through a few more. And the, all work, no play makes Jack a dull boy. So you wouldn't want my pastor going over there without swimming. So we also did a little swimming. Hallelujah. Okay. Caesarea. So here, here Peter's going to Caesarea. And, and there was a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion, which means he's a, a diplomat. He's a high-ranking military leader, which a military leader was in many ways better than a political leader. And he had charge over at least 100, sometimes two, 300, even more than that potentially. But he was the man appointed by Rome to be working in this key city, Caesarea. Caesarea, by the way, was named by the Romans after guess who? Caesar, of course. So uh, that's where Caesarea got its name. When, when Rome started coming all over the place, they named places after their leaders, and so here they are. But this guy's praying. This guy's a champion. He's not born again yet, but he's praying. And God reveals to, to, to this guy, Cornelius, this Roman pagan guy, He's not born again. He's not saved. He hasn't gotten the Holy Spirit yet. But God nonetheless reveals in great detail to Cornelius that he's about to send one of his champions, Peter, uh, also known as Simon, to Cornelius to tell him about Jesus. So all that. And Cornelius believed it, and God said, send your servant to go get Peter. And, and he did. Now, now we come to Peter. Well, as usual, uh, Peter's not the fastest learner. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And um, so Peter's there. He's, he's also praying. Verse 9. And, and then while he's praying, God gives him a vision. Isn't that something? Uh, Cornelius got a vision when he was praying. Now Peter gets a vision when he's praying. You see, God speaks to us when we pray. Hallelujah. So here we've got uh, Peter. And right in front of Peter, he sees this vision of a giant sheet, a white, pure white sheet coming down out of heaven, covered with, with odd creatures. Uh, dragon lizards. Uh, chameleons, snakes, frogs, turtles. I mean, all, all, this, all these odd creatures covering this pure white, white sheet. Well, uh, Peter starts freaking out. He's very uncomfortable. He knows it came down from heaven, so it had to be from God. 
but he's freaking out anyway. And then, and then God says to him, Peter, okay, see, see, God always talks to us by name. He says, rise, kill, and eat. What? You mean I have to touch those things? So this is one of the places in your Bible you can put a smiley face, because this is funny. God says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, you will not find another place in the book of Acts where anybody says, no, Lord. Uh, There aren't too many in the Bible. There aren't too many times anyone. In fact, I cannot think of anyone. Now, Jonah, we know, went in the wrong direction, but he didn't say literally out loud, no, Lord. Peter says out loud, no, Lord. Can you imagine? No, Lord. Kind of like, What Peter was saying is, is, I know these came out of heaven, so you can handle them, but I can't handle them. And then God said something very profound to, to Peter. He says to Peter, Peter, what I call holy, don't you dare call common. Now, common means every day. Peter, I am taking the every day and I'm calling it holy. Common in this context also meant untouchable. It's common, it's untouchable. So God's saying, what I call holy, don't you dare call untouchable. God is tearing down all kinds of of grids, of paradigms, of strongholds in Peter's culturally trained mind. He's tearing them down one after another. Bam, 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 bam. All these are falling down in front of Peter. But now after this, after this detailed expression, after hearing God clearly speak to to Peter, wouldn't you think he'd get it? No, he didn't get it. I mean, God God says to, he shows him this picture, then he gives him the punchline. Don't you call common, don't call every day, don't call untouchable what I call holy. I'm calling these things holy. So God hits rewind on the vision. Click. Plays it again. Same vision. So it's the same thing here. And then another time. Three times. Hits rewind. Click. Plays it again. Same vision. Same word. The third time. He got it. Now, just... Think about this. How many times did God have to tell Cornelius about Peter? How many times did God have to tell Peter about Cornelius? Who's got the, who has the bigger issue here? The believers or the unbelievers? That's the point of, of Acts 10. 
In order for God to work a miracle in Cornelius, he had to first work a miracle in Peter. Until God worked in Peter, Cornelius was left waiting. He was ready, willing, responsive, everything. The table was set, but Peter wouldn't go. God help us. Then, when Peter went, there were some believers, devout Jews, standing outside Cornelius' house, kind of saying, well, Peter, where do you think you're going? And Peter had to replay this whole thing for them, an extended monologue of explanation just to get in to see Cornelius. Outside, these guys were trying to keep Peter from going in. And then... Then finally Peter gets in, and, and he preaches. It's a marvelous sermon. I wish we could look at it in detail. Do yourself a favor. Read Acts 10 on your own this afternoon. It's so powerful. Peter talks about the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He, he exalts Jesus. And, and this is so funny. You can put another smiley face in your, in your journal there next to chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who were listening. I guess this might be funny for me and nobody else, but the reason that's funny is some preachers don't know when to end. <laughs> Peter had more sermon than the Holy Spirit needed. The Holy Spirit was already jumping on these people, and Peter is like, the, the Holy Spirit saying, Peter, would you just wrap it up? Because Peter's still speaking, and the Holy Spirit's jumping all over the crowd. These people are all responding. Now, we, it doesn't say what they did at first. Maybe they go, oh, Lord. Maybe it's a, a hallelujah. Maybe, maybe hands went up. Maybe they fell on their faces. Maybe they started weeping. We don't know what manifestation. It ended up being tongues, but we don't know how it started. But before there were tongues, it was obvious that the Holy Spirit was working, working, working all over, all over the, the, the gathering. All over. And then, but, but, okay, now this is interesting. Peter then says something very profound. He says, why should I not baptize with water people whom God has already baptized in his spirit. Now, the thing that hits me about that is it's perfect logic. I mean, it's brilliant. But what hits me about it is his need to say that. You see, he was, he was even now thinking about the, the, the arguments, the people who would think, oh, you shouldn't baptize these people. They, they need to be in a class. You need to train them. You need to disciple them for three months. You need to prove their authenticity. And P Peter says, well, if God's given them the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give them water. So powerful. But what was so powerful about this moment is the fact this now. You see, in a sense, Peter had no responsibility over the, the Holy Spirit baptism. That was God's work. But now the water baptism, was, he, he, he has to own that. And so his joining in water baptism was his validation that he had learned his lesson. That when God calls a person holy, 
we must never look down our snooty religious noses and call them untouchable, unclean. That, those terms don't work anymore. Not in the church. I gotta tell you a quick story. I was waiting for a plane a couple years ago at my gate and um, I fly a lot so they let me board first and I like those perks. I don't live for them but I enjoy them, hallelujah. So I'm waiting for business class to be announced and this gal walks in. She had funky hair, but she had more piercings on her face than I've ever seen. And God, forgive me, but it, as she was looking around for a place to sit, I said, I got a spot next to me. I wanted to put my bag there. And I said, Lord, don't let her sit next to me. Can you believe that? What's wrong with your pastor? What kind of a heart is that? It's awful. Well, she looks around. There's three seats over here. There's five over here. Guess where she sat? Right next to me. I counted her earrings in this ear. It was, I forget whether it was nine or 12. They were here and here and elsewhere. Hair. But in the next few moments, I don't know any miracle God worked in her, but he worked a miracle in me. I had compassion for her. I still feel what I felt for her. God broke me. And he didn't say these words, but it was as if he said to me, how dare you call everyday common, untouchable, what I call holy. She was like, in a sense, a reptile on a clean white sheet coming right into my life. And I wanted to reject her. I'm telling you, Liberal Alliance Church, God is doing something significant here in these days. He's giving us a love for all people. Skin color, party lines, you name it. Those handles are not what define us. Amen. There's two groups of people. There are lost and there are found. And the only difference between those two is Jesus. Yeah. Why so much room to this one story? Because to me, the biggest miracle of the three stories is not what God did for, for Aeneas the paraplegic, or even Tabitha the dead, or even Cornelius the, the, the Roman pagan. I'd say the biggest miracle, because it takes the most space here of explanation, is the miracle God did in Peter. God has to do in you 
what he needs to accomplish in order for him to do through you what he wants to accomplish. May we welcome these words to our heart. What I, what God is saying, what I call special, what I call holy, don't you dare look down your nose on. I'm going to tell you two quick stories. Uh, the first is about a sheep in Australia. You might have heard about this sheep. Um, he was found um, out grazing um, on the backside of the farmland, and he'd been there apparently five to ten years. Five to ten years this guy was out there. Uh, they named him Barak, uh, like the, the name of our former president, Barak. I think they pronounced it Barak. I had to, I had to, I had to. I just had to, I had to. Sorry about that. Well, when they found this guy, they, it had been sheared when it was young, but it lost its way, and, and nobody ever went to find it. Well, one of the day laborers found this thing, and when they sheared it, 75 pounds of wool so the sheep weighed over 100 pounds, uh, but just the wool, after they cut the wool off, 75 pounds. Now, how much does a sweater weigh? A pound, a half pound? Depends how thick it is. But, I mean, so imagine a sheep with 75 sweaters on. That, that's what this thing was. But here's the deal, here's the point. There are straying sheep. There are lost sheep. Jesus is the one who leaves the 99 to go find the Barak. To go find, that's what God has to say to us. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Yes. I did not come for those who pride themselves in their religion and who are smug and self-righteous. That's not the guy. I came for the sick. I came for the, the piercings. I, I came for the needy that know they're needy. And, and I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, God wants to embolden you so that you are a truth teller to the ordinary people around you. And one who invites the miracle working hand of the Holy Spirit into your everyday so that you can see God do dramatic things in answer to specific prayer. The final story, and it's odd for this one to touch me deeply, but it does. I want to tell you about the Chipka people of northern India in the foothills of the Himalayas, the Chipka people. In the 50s and 60s, some of the largest lumber yards in the world ravaged the foothills of the Himalayas because of the teak wood and other uh, of the best woods in the world are in that location. And there was a woman who, who said enough is enough. But it wasn't, her motivation was because when they would totally gut the side of, of, of the Himalayas, the, the villages in the foothills were being wiped out by mudslides. And and hundreds, thousands were being killed 
because of the mudslides. So she began a movement, the Chipka movement. She enlisted young girls in her village. The, 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 the foothills above them were the next to be targeted. And she led a movement of young girls to go embrace those trees. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, for me, the term tree hugger is kind of derogatory. I've, always, I've even used it, I think, disrespectfully. But I'm not going to anymore. Because these, these young girls put their life on the line. These, these high power uh, people from these lumber yards from around the world uh, were there with guns, they were there with machetes, they were there to, and, and they threatened the girls, but they would not leave. And the one girl, Dara Devi, Dara, was the one who led the charge. This was in 1960. For the next 20 years, there was not one tree cut down in the Himalayas. 20 years. And then in 1980 was the India Forestry Act of 1980. And the act was that for every tree you cut, you replace it. But it was not that trees are so great. It's that people who were being killed in the mudslides, that was what the fight was over. So when you, I would encourage you to remove tree hugger as a slogan of disrepute. Because you know what chipka means? Chipka in Hindi means to hug, to contest for. to cling. And if a girl in India could cling to trees so that other people would, would mock them as the tree huggers, if a, a, a Hindu background woman can do that for trees, our God send his son to cling to a tree. He was the first tree hugger. And it wasn't about the tree, it was about you. He clung to that cross for you and for me. And I call you today. to be a chipka, to be one who hugs, one who clings, one who refuses to let go, one who fights for people's lives, to lay our lives on the line, to hug people, to contest for their souls. Hallelujah. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, it's so convicting to me. It's hard to preach sometimes when uh, I'm probably more under conviction than anyone else in the room. 
But Lord, I repent of my categories. I, can, I repent of seeing some situations like uh, that I don't ever pray for. I don't ever pray for miracles in some situations. It's easy following an, an auto accident for the first few hours, days, to, to fight for people, but then I forget, and then people that are paralyzed for eight years, I, I, don't, I, I don't ever remember praying for someone like that. But Lord, you're able. Yes. You are the God of everyday miracles. If you can heal a guy paralyzed for eight years, you can answer our prayers. If you can raise the dead, you can answer our prayers. If you changed Peter enough to go get Cornelius, you can change our hearts too. Lord, tear down our mindset that sees situations as hopeless. Never. Because God is ever present and when God's present, nothing's hopeless. Lord, tear down our barriers of what's sacred and what's secular. Tear down our barriers between the holy and the common. Tear down our barriers between uh, the untouchable people and the people that we like and want to hang out with. Tear down those barriers. Lord, put in our hearts a supernatural compassion for lost people. Remove our barriers. And Lord, we ask you to grant and stretch, grant and stretch, grant and stretch, grant to us to be truth tellers and stretch forth your hand to do everyday miracles in our lives. My friend, if you're here this morning and it's you, you're the sheep on the backside of the pasture that hasn't been found. Well, you're no longer. God just found you. Just pray this prayer if you feel like a neglected sheep. Lord Jesus, I return to you today. You are my good shepherd. Thank you for clinging to the tree for me, for meeting me in my lostness, for loving me as if I was the only person on earth. And I receive your love today. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your acceptance. I I receive the blessing of belonging in, in the family. I receive my birthright today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hallelujah.